Hello. Oh, you guys sound good. Tell your neighbor right now. Tell, here, tell one neighbor you sound good. Tell the other one you look good. You choose. Is that wrong? <laughs> Let me say hello to all of our locations. Hello, Golden. Hello, Lakewood. Hello, Littleton. Hello, Vatican. Hello, both of our God Behind Bars campuses, men and women. We love you like crazy. We're so glad to do church with you today. And welcome to everybody who's joining us online. We're in a teaching series called Blind Faith, and we've been asking questions about our faith, right? Is there any, is there any reason, any logic, any evidence that would, that would help us as we try to put our faith in God and Jesus and the Bible and the, the Christianity, right, and the whole thing? Or is the whole thing just based on blind faith. That's what we've been asking. And you know, you have been deciding the direction of this series. You've been sending in your submissions and that's been telling me what is most important to you that I talk about on the weekends. And so we're gonna continue doing that today. Week one was, if there's a God, then why is there pain and suffering in the world today? Week two was, why is Christianity the only true religion? And today, week three is, can I trust the Bible? Now, let me, I want to start off by saying something that I've said each week of this series, but just in case you're visiting today, um, I'm very aware of the fact that I'm not even close to perfect. I don't have all the answers. I don't know all the answers. I don't always get it right. And I won't pretend uh, to be anything that I'm not, right? Your job is you send in the questions. My job is I try real hard to be prepared and do my best to, to talk about, to discuss your tough topics. But then we all know the deal. We all go like this and we say, okay, God, this is your thing. And so would you be with us? You prove you're real to us. You let us experience your presence. God, you speak to us about our lives and change our lives. And so that will still be the game plan today. Because of today's topic, it's a little heady. And so you kind of got to be on your toes to sort of stick with a bunch of the information that I'll, that I'll be sharing. Um, but I hope that today builds your faith. So the question is, can I trust the Bible? We ask this question in a lot of ways, and you guys asked this question in a lot of ways. Um, things like, um, how do we know that the gospels about Jesus are true? How do we know that they weren't just made up? They weren't just like legend, and then over time sort of started to be accepted as factual, and now today we read them like they're real. What if they weren't real back then? Or if they were real back then, how do we know that they're trustworthy today. How do we even know we're reading the same thing that they wrote back then? Because a lot of time has went by, right? And didn't people make copies and all kinds of stuff? How do we know they're trustworthy today? And if we can get past those things, why on earth would we think that God wrote the Bible? Didn't men write the Bible? So why would I think it's from God, right? Great questions. I think to get started, uh, a good thing to be aware of is what the Bible claims about itself, right? The Bible says this about itself, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It strengthens us. Oh, sorry, straightens us. It straightens us out and it teaches us to do what is right. 
It is God's way of preparing us in every way, fully equipped for every good thing God wants us to do. You'll hear me and Chad sometimes refer to the Bible as a book, and, and, and I hope you know the truth is it's, while we call it a book, it's actually a collection of books, right? All of these books were written by men, um, different characteristic traits, right? At different time periods to different audiences. But the Bible says of itself that God inspired every single word of every single one of those authors, he didn't just inspire the New Testament. He didn't just inspire the, the, the words that Jesus said. He didn't just inspire the parts that don't confuse us, the parts that don't offend us, all of it. He says, the, uh, God says, the whole thing, all scripture is inspired by God. And so the question that you guys have sent in is, how do we trust that? Right. And so let's break down some of the questions that have been in, been sent in. One was, like I said, how do I know that the Gospels, the stories about Jesus, how do I know that they are even true? Right. And maybe it would be helpful for you to know that as you go through the New Testament of your Bible, this isn't stuff that was written hundreds and hundreds of years after Jesus. Right. This is stuff that was written either by one of the disciples or from from the testimony of one of the disciples, from an associate of one of the disciples. As you go through the New Testament, this stuff is based off of eyewitness testimony of people who were actually trained by Jesus. That's what you're reading. I'm going to zoom in on the New Testament for today's talk uh, because of time. We've got to pick somewhere, right? And especially the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, the accounts of the life of Christ. Um, that's, that's where I'm going to zoom in today. I want you to know this. We know that they were trustworthy then for two reasons. How early they were written and the fact that they were widely used in the first century church. How early they were written and the fact that they were widely used in the church as public trusted documents. Those two things tell us they couldn't have been making up stories back then. They had to be trustworthy then, okay? We talked a little bit about this last week. You can't make up lies about historical events when you got a whole bunch of eyewitnesses still running around alive. The Gospels were written about 40 years after Jesus died. It's too soon to start making up stories. You got to wait a few hundred years, right? Wait till the eyewitnesses and their kids and their grandkids. Wait till they're all gone, then start making up crazy. But you can't make up crazy lies about historical events when there's living eyewitnesses all over the place who can refute it. Who... Um, remembers last week at all locations, raise your hand if you remember my um, floating Mile High Stadium story. See, it's crazy, but you remember that stuff, don't you? So if you weren't here, you're going, dear Lord, what did these people do last week? So I came up with this, I get a bit dramatical, I realize, but I came up with this idea that, you know, what if I was going to start a religion and I was going to do it like the Christians did, I was going to base the start of my religion off of a miraculous event in history. And I said, what if I said that in the year 2000, after the Broncos played their last game at the original Mile High Stadium, and, and everybody in town kind of drove by and saw it was being destroyed, what if I said it miraculously put itself back together and started floating up? I got real dramatic, right? It floated up in the sky. Remember John Elway was on top of it crying with his Super Bowl ring? So, <laughs> but the point is, you remember it, but... 
I can't make up crazy stories like that. It's too soon, right? Because there's too many of you that were alive in Denver at that time and you could refute it. That's what's going on in the New Testament. They can't get away with lying about the stuff they're writing about because there's, there's a whole bunch of people that are still alive that could say, no, I was there. It didn't happen that way. And on the flip side of that coin, if what you're writing about, you got people all over the place, living eyewitness testimony saying, yep, that's true. I saw it. Yep, that's true. That's exactly what happened. I was there. Yep, I was there that day. I saw it. And you can't do anything with that, but trust it, right? It's, it's too much overwhelming, positive evidence showing that what you wrote was true. That's the kind of stuff that's going on in the New Testament. We don't have to wonder if it was true. And they did this stuff on purpose. Let me show you what I mean. Mark chapter 15. I'm going to read two verses, verse 20 and 21. This is about um, when Jesus was being taken up the hill to be crucified. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to point something out. Mark 15, verses 20 and 21. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Richard Bachman, in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, talks about what Mark just did there. He says, think about it. All Mark's trying to do is make sure that Everybody who reads his writing knows that Jesus went up to the cross and was crucified. That's, all he, that's what he needs us to know. He doesn't need to tell us that the guy named Simon picked up the cross. He doesn't need to tell us that Simon has two kids, Rufus and Alexander. Like that has nothing to do with the message he's trying to convey. We won't ever hear from Rufus or Alexander again in the Bible. We don't need to know anything about them. Mark didn't need to include them. But see what he's doing on purpose? He's saying, I want you to know that what I'm telling you is factual and that it can be proven and couldn't be refuted. So if you don't believe me, go ask Simon or talk to either one of his boys, Rufus or Alexander, because they can also tell you. See, he's just giving us proof. He's saying, test me. It's like when you were in high school and or maybe some of you are right now, you're going to have to write a term paper. Right? And, and in term papers, you, you lay some stuff out and then you put a footnote in there. And you say, I, in case you don't believe what I just said, here's where it came from. You can go check the encyclopedia, page 30. That's what Mark's doing. Jesus got marched up the hill to be crucified. Let me give you a footnote real quick. If you don't believe everything I'm telling you, go ask Simon or Rufus or Alexander. They can, they can, they can tell you. See, he's making sure that it is factual what he's writing about and that nobody can refute it. It's what Paul did when he talks about the, the, the resurrection, right? We talked about that last week. He lists 15 eyewitnesses that you can go ask. You don't have to believe me. Go ask them. And then he says, in fact, there's another 500. Go ask them. The guys who are writing the New Testament, they went way out of their way, time after time after time, to make sure that people like us way down the road, we don't have to get this twisted in our mind and wonder if they were telling the truth. They said, no, let me give you enough eyewitnesses and put in enough facts that you can check and you can prove it and you can make sure it was accurate. The gospels, if they were lies, they would have been refuted, but they couldn't be refuted. They were written too early to be lies. And the fact that they were used in the first century among the churches as trusted 
factual, public documents shows us, without a doubt, there's just too much evidence, it shows us they were accurate then. So the question for us then becomes, well, are they accurate today, right? Because that was, that was 2,000 years ago, and a bunch of copies were made, and, and people were involved, and, and time has passed. So can we really be confident to think what we're reading right now is what they actually wrote way back then? And the answer to that question is also yes, we can be extremely confident. And I'll tell you how. All ancient writings are authenticated in two ways. The number of copies and how closely the copies can be dated to the original writing. The number of copies and how closely these copies can be dated back to the original writing. That's how we authenticate ancient writings of all kinds today. Let me give you another crazy analogy, but I bet you'll remember it. All right, let's say that Jesse, Jesse is our young adults pastor, and um, our 20-something group here at Red Rocks Church is literally one of the best 20-something groups at a church in the country. It's crazy how good they are. If you're in your 20s and don't go to the Lakewood campus on Thursday nights to, to be a part of this group, like, you've got something wrong, okay? You're the problem. So you need to check it out. So anyways, let's say Jess writes a book about Red Rocks Church. She's an amazing writer. In fact, she just came out with her first book. But she's been a part of this thing almost since day one. And she's seen like behind the curtain, the good, the bad, and the ugly of this church almost since day one. So I thought if someone's going to write a book, she'd probably be a good person to do it. Let's say that Jesse's going to write a book about Red Rocks Church. And I started thinking that poor girl and the things that we have put her through over the years... And I thought one of her chapters would be named Scars. And it would just be her going, I have seen things that have scarred me for life. And she could talk about all kinds of crazy things. But let's say that hypothetically she says, these guys were so like not what you're supposed to be when you run a church that they decided it would be a good idea to make a rap video. And let's say she writes about it and then she puts a picture of it. Some of you were here when that happened. Dear Lord, forgive us. And let's say she writes all about it and how she's just sort of been scarred because she had an idea of what ministry was going to be like and then she got involved here at Red Rocks Church and the whole thing went haywire. And then let's say she goes, and you know what? It's not that they were dumb enough to do it once. They were dumb enough to do it twice. They made a second rap video. And then she puts another picture of that. <laughs> That's right. That happened. Some of you guys are going to need to get on Vimeo today and check it out. Look at short-haired Chad. Remember him? Hi, short-haired Chad. We miss you. You look so handsome, so young. Let's say that Jesse keeps writing and she says, guys, those, those were, those were the, no church should have had to experience that, but we did. But she says it got way worse and it got to like the point where I saw things I'll never be able to get out of my mind. Like when they did the Motley Crue video. She puts up that picture. That, that got real that day, okay? That got real. Um, in fact, take that picture down. I need, I need to defend myself real quick because I still have people talk to me about that video. You need to know a couple things. Number one, I was 100% against that video. That was entirely Chad's idea. I'm not, that's not a lot. That was his idea. And when I got there to film, I didn't have a costume. And they're like, oh, don't worry. We got your whole outfit. And I get there and they're like, here's your leather pants and your half shirt. I mean, I'm scarred for life from having worn that, Okay. Did I get passionately involved after we started filming? Yes, I did. 
because I loved you that much, okay? Yes, I did. Did I pull a hamstring while doing a high kick during that video? Yes, I did. But I can promise you this, I have paid for my sins, okay? You don't know what it's like, true story, you don't know what it's like to go to your son's school and meet his teacher for the first time and have her look you in the eye and go, oh, I know you. She goes, oh, I went to your church once. Yeah, you had the leather pants on, you're doing high kicks, yeah. Notice she said, I went to your church once. I could tell she was like, that explains a whole lot about your kids. Like, I could tell what she was thinking, okay? I've paid for my sins in that video, all right? Back to the video. Let's say that Jesse's writing this whole book, and truth be told, she ought to blame you guys for a lot of those videos, because you laugh and clap and condone our behavior. That's what you do. You, you encourage our behavior. So let's say she's writing this book, and she says, you're not going to believe it. It was crazy. It was wheels off. Somehow, though, in spite of the people in the church family, God did some amazing things. Thousands of people were finding Christ for the first time. In fact, in, in, in 2016, there were over 10,000 people a weekend going to different services around the city. It was crazy, and she writes this whole thing. Now, let's say a 1,000 years goes by from right now. Jess didn't have a laptop, she didn't have a hard drive, she didn't have the cloud, she didn't have any way of saving her writings. So she passes out a whole bunch of copies, right? Just starts handing them out. Thousand years goes by and archeologists are digging up what used to be the Denver, Colorado metro area and they start finding copies of her writings. And let's say they find 15 copies, some in Littleton, some in Lakewood, some in Golden, some in Arvada, they bring all 15 copies of this together, and it sounds ludicrous. Like, no, no church would actually do the stuff she's talking about. It sounds crazy, but you bring all 15 copies together, they all match. You know what they would say? We've got an authentic copy. We know we're reading what she wrote 1,000 years ago because we got 15 different copies that prove it. That's how ancient writings are authenticated. All right, so now let's talk about a couple that you'll know from, from philosophy class, a bunch of you. The Iliad by Homer and the writings of Plato. Now, this will get a little heady for a minute, but just stick with me. We believe that when we look at their writings, we believe that what we're reading is the same thing they wrote. Why? Because we found a bunch of copies, and they all match up. Same thing. Plato wrote between 427 and 347 BC some of his writings. And, and you'll, if you take philosophy, you'll read it, and, and, and there won't be any doubt as to whether or not it's legit. Because after he did some of his writings, get this, 1,200 years later, we found a copy, a copy that had been made, excuse me, 1,200 years later. We found seven of them. Well, we didn't, but you know what I mean. Seven copies have been found. So without a doubt, historians go, what we've got is legit. We're reading what he wrote back then. We got seven different copies to prove it. The Iliad by Homer, 643 copies. We know without a shadow of a doubt when we read that, we're reading what he wrote because we got over 600 copies and they all line up. Now, Red Rocks Church, let this build your faith about the word of God. The New Testament written between 50 and 90 AD. The first copy that we have isn't 1,200 years after it was written. It's less than 100. And we don't have seven copies. 
We don't have 600 copies. Just the New Testament, we have over 24,000 copies and partial copies proving the authenticity of the Bible. And that's just the New Testament. The Bible has more physical evidence proving its accuracy and authenticity than any ancient writing on the planet. We have more writings about the life of Jesus than we do about the Roman Empire at the exact same time. God went way out of his way to make sure that we knew today our faith in his word isn't even close to blind faith. (laughs) Maybe you say, well, okay. Maybe there's a lot of evidence. Maybe you knew about that. Maybe you didn't. Okay, we, we know it was accurate then. We know we're reading what they wrote back then. But here's where I have a problem. You want me to believe that thing's from God? I mean, guys wrote it. They, most of them told you when you start reading their books, they say, hey, I'm the one who wrote it. Why would I think God wrote that thing? And I want to give you three reasons. First is this. The Bible knows more about our history than we do. The Bible is historically perfect. Make no mistake about it. Scholars, uh, skeptics, I, I mean, skeptical scholars for a long time have wanted to disprove the Bible. And, and one of the ways of going about it is let's find something that the Bible says that has happened and let's prove it wrong. Because if we can find one thing that the Bible says has happened and we can prove it didn't happen, then we can prove it's not from God. We don't need it. And so in the early 1900s, that was real popular. And, and the, the Bible talks about this Hittite nation. And, and there was a lot of skeptical archaeologists and historians that said, the Bible's wrong. We have zero proof of a Hittite nation. The Bible's just flat out wrong, so it can't be from God. 1906, archaeologists dug up the capital city of the Hittite nation and soon after found the remains of 40 other Hittite cities. And a whole bunch of skeptics had to take a big step back and go, I guess the Bible was right. Apparently, the Bible knows more about our history than we do. Another big one was a a King Belshazzar. You can read about him in Daniel chapter 5. This was a big one for a long time. A bunch of archaeologists and historians were trying to say, look, you can't trust the Bible. It can't be from God because the the Bible says in this location during this time, there was a king by the name of Belshazzar. Well, we have historical records that say that in this time and in this location, there was a different king, not Belshazzar. Bible's wrong. This is cool. In 1956, archaeologists found three stones that were inscribed with the detailed account of the king leaving his post, going out to fight with his troops in battle, and temporarily putting his son, Belshazzar, on the throne. And everybody went, nope. I guess the Bible's right after all. I guess the Bible knows more about our history than we do. Nelson Gluck says this, it may be categorically stated that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. See, archaeology and history do nothing but substantiate the claims of the Bible. William Albright said it this way, there can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the substantial historicity of the Old Testament tradition. There have been over 25,000 archaeological discoveries that substantiate the validity of Scripture. 
He said over 25,000 times, the professionals in my field have had to back up and go, look at that. The Bible was right. The Bible knows more about our history than we do. The Bible tells us things about this world that no human author would have known. And you can actually research that particular line of thinking and you can read all day long, verse after verse after verse after verse, where the Bible, God tells us things about our world through the authors that no human author would have known. Let me give you one example. The hydrological cycle. This is like a modern scientific discovery, right? It basically says, um, and you can go read about this one yourself, it says that the, the rain and snow come down from the clouds and they water the, the ground, right? And then the water goes into the streams and into the rivers and into the ocean, and then it evaporates off the ocean, goes back into the clouds, and it just keeps going like this. The hydrological cycle. This is like us at our best going, check us out. Check out what we just discovered, right? Listen to what Isaiah 55.10 says, and this was written over 2,700 years ago. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth. They didn't know that. They didn't have a clue that that was happening. There's no explanation for Isaiah 55.10 unless the creator of the hydrological cycle wrote that verse. The Bible tells us things about our world, and we could, we could go through this particular line of thinking all day. The Bible just tells us things about our world that no human author ever would have known. The Bible predicts the future in a way that no human author ever could have done. Norman Geisler says this, if an omniscient God exists who knows the future, well, then predictive prophecy is possible. And if the Bible contains such predictions then they are a sign of its divine origin. What's he saying there? Look, humans can't predict the future. It's real simple. Only God can if there's a God. If the Bible predicts the future, then God wrote that thing. That's what he's saying. Is it possible? Does the Bible do that? Does the, does the Bible predict the future in a way that would simply point to divine inspiration? And the answer to that question is yes. A bunch let me share one, Ezekiel chapter 26. You can read this one on your own. The author says, I'm gonna give you seven futuristic predictions about this city named Tyre. And, and, and he says, for starters, the city's gonna be destroyed. And here's how it's gonna happen, and here's who's gonna be a part of it. He gets so specific, right? This isn't some of those vague, like, this could happen, and then no matter what happens, he goes, see, I told you. This is like real specific stuff. He gets so specific, he says, let me tell you what's gonna happen with the ruins of the city after it's destroyed. Check this out, Ezekiel 26, 12. They will plunder your wealth and loot your merchandise. They will break down your walls and demolish your fine houses and throw your stones, timber, and rubble into the sea. You think about it, that's a pretty gutsy prediction. I prophesy that not only will this city completely be destroyed, but let me tell you what's going to happen with the ruins. Like, that's crazy, right? Listen to this. This is Dr. Gregory Boyd, a book that I highly recommend called Letters from a Skeptic. He says this. Several hundred years after this prophecy, it was fulfilled in detail. Alexander the Great laid siege to the city. The inhabitants fled to an island just off the coast, 
which was part of their territory. Alexander couldn't invade it with a naval fleet. So he pushed the debris of the city into the sea to form a causeway to it. Hundreds of years before Alexander the Great was even born, the Bible said that the ruins of this city will be pushed into the ocean. Here comes Alexander the Great, can't get to an island, pushes the debris into the city to create a walkway. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that humans simply cannot fabricate. That's why we know that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Experts have tried to figure out, like, what are the possibilities of just those seven prophecies coming true, like, by accident, by coincidence? And they figured at best it's one in 400 million. Either, either the, the demise of the city tire is the most freakish coincidence thing we've ever seen in human history, or God wrote that book. The possibility of just seven of these prophecies coming true is like through the roof impossible. Imagine the probability of hundreds, because that's what we have in the Bible. The Bible in the Old Testament makes over 300 futuristic predictions just about Jesus, and every single one of them comes true. Let this build your faith. Let me just share one. All right, Psalm 22 talks about the fact that one day God will send a Messiah to this world. And when he dies, he's going to die by crucifixion. Now get this, when that was written, crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet. But the author says, I'm not just going to tell you how he's going to be killed. I'm going to tell you what he's going to have to drink in the process. That's how specific I'll get. Psalm 69, 21. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Over a thousand years later, listen to what happened while Jesus was being crucified. John 19, 28 and 29. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus's lips. Listen, put this together for a sec. Over a thousand years before Jesus was born, before crucifixion had ever even been invented, the Bible says this is what's going to happen. And a thousand years later, while he's being crucified, the Roman soldiers just happened to have a jar of vinegar. They weren't trying to make Old Testament prophecies come true. In fact, they were trying to prove that this guy had nothing to do with God. And right there next to the cross where Jesus is being crucified is a jar of vinegar. It's as if God said, look, I know that you're going to have times where you doubt. You're going to go through tough, tough times, hard times, confusing times difficult situations. And, and I want you to be able to lean on my word for guidance in every area of your life. So I'm going to go way out of my way to show you that this is the inspired word of God put together in a way that no human could ever do. It's as if he just knew we were going to need it. See, faith in the Bible, Red Rocks Church, it isn't even close to blind faith. It's, his, it's historically perfect. In fact, it knows more about our history than we do. It tells us things about this world that no human author could have known, and it predicts the future in ways that no human could ever do. 
God said, I'm going to go way out of my way on this one. And I'm going to make sure you know that you can trust my word. Band, you can come up. See, this stuff's important to me. What we've been talking about in this series is important to me because it helps me with my faith. And I'm guessing it does with a lot of yours as well. And see, we need to be reminded that there is logic and reason and evidence that helps us to put our faith in the word of God. We need to be reminded of that because we need to be reminded of what the word of God says about our lives sometimes. And we need to know that it's not just wishful thinking and fancy church talk, that it's actually the creator of the universe speaking to us about our lives. Some of you, you may not have a relationship with Jesus. You need to know that the word of God is speaking to you about your life today. And it's not fancy church talk and it's not positive reinforcement and it's not wishful thinking. God says that Jesus died on a cross to pay the price for all your mistakes, for all my mistakes. And that today, if we just call on his name, we say, I'm gonna put my faith in you, Jesus. He says, I will forgive your sins, redeem your past, restore your life, change your future, give you heaven forever. That's not a pastor talking to you. That's the creator of the universe talking to you through his holy word. That's what he says about your life. See, we need to be reminded, those of us who already have a relationship with Jesus, because sometimes we go through tough times, don't we? And we're not sure that our dreams are happening. And the circumstances around us aren't what we thought would be happening at this point in life. And we go through crazy, tragic things and scary things and confusing things. And we need to be reminded that God's word is real from him to us because he says, no matter what you're going through, he said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm right here with you. God says he has a plan for your life, even if you don't know what that plan is. He says that you are a conqueror, an heir to the throne, a child of God. He says that no matter what goes on today in life, that you can get through it, that you can overcome it because greater is he who is within you than he that is in the world. That's not church talk. That's creator of the universe talk. And we need to be reminded of that sometimes. Maybe some of you need to be reminded of that right now with a real high level of confidence. We can put our faith in the word of God and we can know that it is the divine inspired word of God and it doesn't take anything even close to blind faith to get there. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that you care about us, that you love us, that you accept us, that you forgive us. I thank you that you let your son die on a cross. We've never been good enough to, to deserve that. I've never been good enough to earn that. But I thank you, God, for it. I pray, God, that if anyone who's hearing this right now is having a tough time, doubts have been creeping in, I pray, God, that even right now you would be building their faith, encouraging them to turn toward you and experience you for themselves, encouraging them to turn towards your word and experience the power of your divinely inspired word for themselves. With everyone's eyes closed at every location, I wanna ask two questions. I wanna give you a chance to respond today. 
And the first one is this. You already have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And maybe you don't want anyone to know, and maybe you'd be embarrassed if certain people know, but truth is you've had doubts creeping in your mind recently about your faith, about your God, maybe even about his word. Life just happens. Things have happened. Time has gone by and doubts have crept in. And today you say, God, I've already put my faith in Jesus, but I wanna experience you right now. I wanna know without a shadow of a doubt that you're with me right now. If that's you, just raise your hand. I just wanna say a prayer for you. A bunch of people. Second question is this. You don't have a relationship with Jesus, but you know that right now he's calling you into a relationship. The Bible says that he calls us into a relationship with him. And right now you just know it. You can't explain it, but you know it. And I know what it feels like because I've been there. There's something inside you and your heart, you know he's calling me right now. Now's my time. And you know it. I need to ask him to forgive me of my sins. I want to put my faith in Jesus, not only so he gets involved in my life right now, but so that I get heaven forever. If that's you, raise your hand right now at every location. And I'm going to say a prayer for you. Raise him high. Keep him up. God behind bars, put him up. Littleton, Lakewood, Arvada, Golden, keep him up. Praise God. God, I thank you right now. We're just responding to you as we feel led to respond to you. And I pray, God, that you would help every single one of us start to experience your presence. I pray right now, God, as we start to worship you with music, that we would experience your presence in a real and tangible way. I thank you for the salvations that are taking place right now, God. And God, I pray for everybody who, who just said, I need to experience you today, God. I've been dealing with doubts. I pray, God, that you would be with us right now as we worship. Help us as we deal with our doubts. Build our faith. Encourage us. I pray, God, that people would start to feel your peace in the name of Jesus right now as we begin to, as we begin to just invite you to help us to be more aware of your presence. I pray, God, that we would start to experience your peace in the name of Jesus. God, I thank you for what you're doing in our lives. I thank you that you brought us together. And I thank you that we get to now worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, at all of our locations, would you guys stand up and let's worship.